This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hi, I'm Blake Chastain, and this is Powers and Principalities. This show focuses on the systems and institutions that prop up white evangelical power and influence in America and the world. Season one is focused on white evangelicalism and Christian nationalism. This is episode six. My guest today is Robert Jones, founder and CEO of PRRI, the Public Religion Research Institute, and author of the recent book, White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. In this conversation, we address the legacy of racism in white American Christianity, its continued presence in America's pews, pulpits, and politics, and how every white American Christian or person who comes from a white American Christian background needs to reckon with this history. This book is of critical importance to the white Christian and post-Christian population in America, especially in light of Donald Trump's utter failure to condemn white supremacy following his comments at the first presidential debate. If you'd like to support this show, please do so by telling people about it, by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, and signing up for a paid subscription to my newsletter, The Post-Evangelical Post, at postevangelicalpost.com. Listeners can get 25% off a subscription by visiting the link in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at brchastain and on Instagram at brchastain underscore. Without further ado, let's get to this conversation. My guest today is Robert Jones, founder and CEO of PRRI, the Public Religion Research Institute, and author of the recent book, White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. Robert, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. Really glad we're able to talk about your book. It's it's very important um, for understanding our, our current moment as well as our history. And I, I have to say up top, I recognize the reality of two white men talking about race. Um but however, I, I think that your book is one of many that's out right now that this moment needs in order for white populations, including white churches, to begin having conversations about race and reckoning with the legacy of white supremacy. Your book is actually a combination of personal experience, history, and sociological data. But I want to start with your personal experience and how that informed your own process of reckoning with white supremacy. What began that process for you? Right. Well, um, you know, I, I I think it's it's really been a, a lifelong you know process um, to to be honest. Um, so I, I grew up um, in uh, Mississippi for the most part as a Southern Baptist, uh, so very much inside you know the kind of the largest uh, Protestant denomination and inside that evangelical <clears throat> world, and. Uh, you know, it, I, I was that kid also who was there, you know, every time the door was open. I mean, I, I, I would, no kidding, it sometimes, you know, like many people in who were active in evangelical churches, um, you know, I was there maybe four or five times a week, um, depending on what was going on. 
uh, all the way through, was a member of the youth group and, uh, you know, went to a Southern Baptist college. I have a Master of Divinity degree from a Southern Baptist seminary. So, you know, very much inside uh, that world. And, you know, I think the first crack um, that I kind of identify in the book for me and that kind of edifice of innocence is maybe one way to think about it, um, where I began to get uh, a more critical look at our own history and heritage was when I was sitting in a Baptist history class in seminary. I was in my early 20s and heard for the first time the origin story of the Southern Baptist Convention, my home denomination. And, you know, that is that in 1845, there was a dispute over whether it was legitimate for a Christian clergy person to enslave other human beings uh, based on the color of their skin. And Northern Baptists uh, came to a point where they rejected that uh, claim and would not endorse um, uh, a, a minister who was uh, going in, into mission work. Uh, and uh, the, the Baptist churches in the South uh, disagreed um, and, in fact, put this as a test case up very intentionally to kind of force the issue. Um, and when the Northern Baptists uh, kind of backed off, they basically withdrew um, for what had been a kind of cooperative endeavor at um, uh, kind of funding missions efforts uh, and instead formed what became known as the Southern Baptist Convention um, in 1845 explicitly over this issue of allowing it, not only allowing, but actually endorsing the idea that someone could be a minister of the gospel and someone who enslaved other human beings uh, at the same time, that these were perfectly compatible Thanks. So that was, you know, that was in my early 20s. Um, I'm now in my early 50s. So that was three decades ago. And, I, you know, I would say that kind of over time, there have been other little things that have intruded, but it really has been the last five in my consciousness, but it's been the last five years, I think, uh, it particularly, um, you know, the, the shooting of Trayvon Martin, uh, the whole uh, kind of beginnings of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, and then, you know, everything from uh, Freddie Gray in Baltimore, Michael Brown, uh, and these kind of just, you know, drumbeat after drumbeat and more visible, I think, um, nationally um, than it had been in the past. Not that these things were new, but this this very visibility. And then, you know, two other events, I think, in particular that really pushed me to write the book were um, the events uh, of Dylan Roof uh, shooting nine African-Americans uh, as they were at Bible study um, at, at a at Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, um, and then um, the white supremacist marches in Charlottesville. Um, you know, we just passed the three-year anniversary of that um, event, um, where you know we had people openly chanting, um, you know, these neo-Nazi slogans of "blood and soil" and "Jews will not replace us." Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it was the movement of this, you know, so overtly that that it wasn't even dog whistles or whispers anymore, but it was people shouting. Um, and declaring, you know, uh, overtly um, a, a kind of white supremacist worldview um, and, and a real lack of, I think, accounting, you know, sort of, of you know, it was a personal book, uh, really. And so, you know, my own trying to make sense of this legacy um, that, that, that kind of helped me, you know, push me to write. Right. I like that term that you used of edifice of innocence, of just that, that like there's this presumption of a sort of benign history, Right. Um, yeah, but but that's not really the the truth of history itself um, within these denominations, and that's what I appreciate about your book is that it really doesn't spare any root or branch of white American Christianity. I mean, speaking for myself personally, I grew up United Methodist. I went to a Wesleyan college. 
Uh, and even they, the holiness tradition, separate from the Baptist traditions, had their own schisms around slavery in the 19th century as well. But you're also critical of you're critical of white evangelicals in general and your your own Southern Baptist tradition in particular. But you also do highlight the ways in which mainline denominations and white Catholics are and were also complicit. Um, what are some examples from white American Christian history that show how these racist ideas, even though like people like us, I'm I'm in my late 30s, so I'm younger than you, but I also grew up in that sort of milieu where you know, a, a presumption of innocence was sort of de facto. But yeah, what are some examples from that white American Christian history that show how these racist ideas and practices were enforced across these denominations? And yeah, well, you know, as we said, I mean, the book is is really part memoir, so I do start, um, you know, uh, with. Uh, the kind of evangelical world, the Southern Baptist world, kind of expanded out to the evangelical world, and you know, um, it, and and I, I thought that was appropriate given it was a you know a memoir and kind of wanting to get your own house in order uh, first, um, you know. But it, but it's it's true that um, you know once I started digging and doing the the historical work, uh, it became very clear that this was not by any means something confined to. Baptist or the white evangelical world, but but that really all the branches of white Christianity, so white mainline Protestants, uh, from which the United Methodist you know Church is a part of, along with Presbyterians and Episcopalians, uh, the United Church of Christ, that 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 world that it is often perceived to be the more progressive end, you know, of the white Protestant world. Even even there, uh, there were just these just gut wrenching you know examples, and then among white Catholics. Who you know have who are predominantly in urban centers in the Northeast and um, historically and and have their own history of being persecuted as Catholics even even there um, you know there was these things so just a couple of examples I mean you know it's it's worth noting that um, virtually every uh, Protestant denomination white Protestant denomination split um, over the issue of slavery um, and the Civil War uh, so it wasn't just Baptist North and South but it was Methodists Episcopalians Presbyterians. Um, you know, that all divided. And so the Southern branches of those denominations um, basically aligned with the Confederacy um, and uh, supporting slavery and providing religious justification, moral legitimation, and cover for the Confederacy, right, uh, in the name of Christianity. Um, and those were very overt. They weren't passive. They were, they were very overt. Um, and just, you know, one example uh, in the United Methodist Church, for example, um, the uh, you know the denomination splits, and even when it comes back together, this is like in the 20th century. Um, uh, there and, and they were including some African American churches in that reuniting of, of Methodist North and South, but even then they segregated uh, the African American churches and clergy into this fictitious thing called the central jurisdiction. So uh, in, instead of allowing them to just kind of be active in the um, the natural kind of among their geographic neighbors, which is the way the Methodist system is is, is set up, um, they confi- they kind of just confine them all into one place. It was essentially a religious gerrymandering mm. um, mm. exercise to re- to reduce their power uh, and and to also make it so that local white Methodist clergy did not actually have to interact with African American clergy in their own geographic area um, when they had um, kind of regional meetings uh, because. All the African American clergy have been grouped together, um, no matter where they were across the country. Um, you know that that effectively reduced their ability to have influence inside inside the Methodist denomination. 
You know, and the Episcopal Church is also interesting. Again, it's, I think, often thought of as, you know, a kind of more liberal uh, group, but it, it's worth remembering that uh, Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, these were all Episcopalians, um, you know, and some of the churches in the South, um, uh, you know, in Richmond, for example, the, you know, the, the headquarters of the of Confederacy, um, there's an Episcopal church there that was the home church of Davis and Lee uh, that actually uh, installed stained glass windows depicting Lee and Jackson uh, and Davis as essentially as Christian saints, um, literally in, in, the, in, in the stained glass windows. So this goes very, very deep, not just among Baptists. And white Catholics, just one example there, um, uh, the, the, uh, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops uh, and the Archdiocese of New York actually did the same, a very similar thing to the Methodists. And that is that um, if you were black and Catholic in New York, um, and again, this is not in the South, it's, it's a very urban center in the Northeast, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and, and you wanted to go to Catholic school, you were certainly able to, but it was, they basically designated one parish, St. Mark's Parish, as the school uh, for, seg- they segregated, and all African Americans, uh, no matter where they were in the city, uh, if you wanted to go to Catholic school, that's where you went. Um, and they were also encouraged to go to that Catholic parish for, for worship services. And well into the 20th century, um, African-Americans were required to sit in the back and to wait until after all the white members of the church had received the Eucharist before they could um, receive the Eucharist. So these, these lines of segregation and hierarchy, racial hierarchy, um, mm-hmm. you know, were really dominant um, th- through all of our history. I mean, it is really you know, you can't really read the history straight without re- realizing this, um, this kind of white supremacist assumptions, like running all the way through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're, and one of the things your book also highlights is the way in which it, it is not confined to the South, as you mentioned with that example in, uh, in New York. Um, it's not these, these prejudices, this, this type of racism is present in the Midwest, in the North. Uh, it is absolutely not confined to the South. Um, I'm from Indiana. There were sundown towns in Indiana. Um, oh, right. Yeah. There are all sorts of uh, examples of this, and your your book is provides an ample number of them. One of the other things that your book highlights is the ways in which teachings about the lost cause in the South, as well as Confederate monument building by groups such as the United Daughters of the Confederacy, were intertwined with religious teaching and became part of the cultural fabric of white Christianity. And we continue to reckon with these monuments to the Confederacy, even now following the protests after the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others. How did these statues and other types of memorializing serve to normalize and valorize um, this cruel and, and racist past and, and sanitize this sort of very real violence and death that, that, that it caused. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a, that, the group you mentioned, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, is a group I knew very little about. I mean, I'd probably seen their name in passing, but it hadn't really registered um, uh, just how active they were. This is a group, it's kind of a women's auxiliary group um, that formed really in the, it was not right after the Civil War, but a few decades after in the 1890s and into the early decades, uh, really between 1890 and, and World War One, um, that was a very powerful group. There was over 100,000 women involved at its peak. They were mostly from white, wealthy families uh, connected to the Confederacy, kind of to, you know, old old families that supported the Confederacy. And their mission really was uh, to make sure the Confederacy wasn't forgotten. And, and even though the war had been lost, 
um, to erect these monuments. Um, and, and they talked about them very much as educational um, things for children, right? So that um, that that it was for the next generation. They were worried that the ideals of the Confederacy would be lost. Um, but many of these same women, right? I mean, they were they were the same women who were also very active in churches um, all, all across the South, and and you can see them picking up church practices and adapting them for this kind of pro-Confederate educational system. And one of the most striking ones um, that I came across um, was that they actually developed a catechism. Yeah. Um, uh, for for children. Um, and so, you know, what what it did is and for those who, you know, may not be familiar, a catechism is essentially a, um, a kind of educational tool used uh, for children, usually for confirmation services. Mm-hmm. And it basically teaches you the facts right about the faith. And so, you know, and it's a kind of rote, it's a question and answer structure. Who is God? And then there's an orthodox answer that that the child is supposed to memorize and, and say back. So the teacher would ask the question, the pupils kind of recite in unison, um, you know, back to the teacher. And this is kind of how it was a kind of rote method of education. Um, and so they developed, uh, you know, a, um, a Confederate catechism. And, and instead of who is God, who is Jesus, you know, uh, who created the earth, those kinds of questions in the catechism, um, it was what was the cause of the Confederacy and how were slaves treated um, and those kinds of questions. And, you know, the answers were, um, you know, the North not being willing to let the, uh, the Southern states have the right of self-determination and how were slaves traded, uh, the children were memorized, they were treated well and, you know, were happy to work for their masters and like these kinds of things. Um, and, and, you know, those sound kind of bizarre in tandem, but if you can imagine also put them, put them into the lived world in which they were created and what you realize is that what was not an uncommon thing would be for a kid um, to go to their, they, and they had youth chapters of so the, the United Daughters of the Confederacy had, mm-hmm. um, youth chapters. And so they would, it wouldn't be uncommon for one of those kids to go up, to go to Saturday morning meeting, um, and be instructed in this Confederate catechism and then to show up for Sunday school the next day, um, at their church and, and perhaps even have the same teacher, uh, teaching them the Christian catechism. And so if you're a kid, these things get melded together um, in a way that one is about kind of the South and one is about Christianity, and they're very, very compatible and kind of just inculcated as part of your worldview. And these statues then are, they talked about them as things that kids walk by every day. That's why they're on places like the county courthouse square, you know, and very, the center of town. They're there as a just undeniable declaration that we lost the war uh, but make no mistake who is still in control and who is still running things here. It is, there's still white supremacy here. And, you know, lest you make any mistake about it, here's the 60 foot, you know, granite column uh, with a Confederate soldier at the top of it to kind of remind you of uh, who's really still in charge. Right. And what are your thoughts on the way discussions around these monuments have progressed or regressed since the protests for racial justice began in May, it certainly seems to have changed since your book was even finished, which was was recently. Yeah, you know, well, I turned the manuscript in about a year ago mm-hmm. um, today, and when I did, I mean, I, I certainly would not have imagined that we would have the events around the Confederate flag and these Confederate monuments that we monuments that we've had um, this last year, uh, because I mean, those monuments have all stood there for well over a hundred years. I mean, you know. Uh, it, it's, it's it's worth noting just quickly um, that um, 
one of the most important things to understand about those monuments is that they weren't created during the Civil War, even in the, the few years right after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Most of them were actually created in the 20th century, um, and they were created as whites were um, kind of clawing back control from Reconstruction after the Civil War and implementing Jim Crow laws, implementing segregation um, and uh, voter disenfranchisement. And, and so it was part of that movement of whites really reclaiming dominance after um, a loss in the Civil War. Um, so they were very much part of that movement and not not really, a, it wasn't really a, just a memorializing movement. It, it was literally a movement about reclaiming white supremacy um, in, in the face of kind of Civil War, um, Civil War defeat. But what's notable actually is that um, there has been um, movement since then. So we've had a lot of action on the ground, but on the on public opinion, we've actually not seen a lot of movement about Confederate monuments. Um, you know, when I when I wrote the book, we had about you know uh, six and ten Americans saying that they saw them more as Southern pride, and only thirty five percent seeing them as symbols of racism. Um, that's moved only slightly. Um, you know, our, our most recent data has it at from the summer has it at fifty nine percent. Southern pride and 38%, uh, you know, see them more as a symbol of racism. So really only a 3% point, 3% point uptick in people seeing them as racism. And when you look at white Christians um, in the country, white evangelicals, um, for example, have actually become, there's been not a lot of movement among white mainliner Catholics, but white evangelicals um, and Republicans overall too, um, have actually moved more in the direction of, of, have become more entrenched. They're more likely today than they were a year ago to say uh, that these uh, that that monuments are a symbol of Southern pride rather than a symbol of racism. So it seems that one effect mm. um, on this issue is it actually has uh, further polarized uh, people um, on, on these issues rather than kind of moving people, um, you know, more more uh, kind of to one direction or, or the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's made them more calcified in their in their position in that regard. Right. Mm. Right. Well, using that as a segue, I'd like to return to white evangelicals in particular. Your book highlights an extremely helpful framework from two other researchers, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. Mm -hmm. Uh, Quoting from your book, you write that particularly on questions related to race, they found that white evangelicals' cultural toolkit consisted of tools that restricted their moral vision to the personal and interpersonal realms while screening out institutional or structural issues. Specifically, Emerson and Smith discovered that the white evangelical cultural toolkit contained three main tools that are interconnected by theology, individualism, relationalism, and anti-structuralism. That passage really rang true for me as someone who's lived in this community and believed in these things. Um, What are they referring to regarding a cultural toolkit? Uh, And if you could, could you summarize these three main tools and the theology that connects them? Sure. Yeah. Um, so it, it it sometimes I think sounds a little more complex than I than I think it is. I mean, it, mm-hmm. that research is so helpful at kind of just dissecting it, you know, and letting you kind of laying it out on the table where you can kind of see the parts right um, there. So I, and so I, I am indebted to Emerson Smith, and then behind them is actually a sociologist named Ann Swidler, um, who actually coined the term tool, like a kind of cultural toolkit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a helpful way of thinking about it. Um, you know, that one of the things that any worldview and kind of cultural situation that we grow up in gives us, I mean, to think of culture as kind of giving us lenses to see the world with, right? They, they're kind of explanatory frameworks. And so when we see things, we're, we have these kind of explanatory frameworks that we see through 
Um, and so it's one of the reasons why two different groups of humans can see the same event and interpret them in wildly different ways um, is that we have these kind of lenses that really shape and make meaning of what we're, uh, of kind of the raw data of what we're seeing out there. And um, so it, it, and so it means that it helps you see some things and it inevitably makes it very difficult to see other things, depending on what the tools you have at your disposal are. And so in the evangelical world, um, this idea of individualism and relationalism go quite go together. Um, so on the one hand, uh, individualism, I think the easiest way to kind of connect that one up is to think about how um, evangelicals, and this has actually gotten to be kind of wider than even evangelicals, but how kind of white Christians, I think, and, and particularly white Protestants think about salvation. Um, and it is this kind of individual relationship with Jesus. I mean, if there was anything I heard, um, I mean, and I guess it's remarkable to think about this. Like, if there's anything I heard, maybe every every service, it was this phrase, a personal relationship with Jesus, or some variant of that phrase, um, every time, right? What I never heard and what I cannot remember hearing at all was any references to racial inequality, um, structural racism, uh, institutional, the way that institutions are arranged that uh, disenfranchise one group and privilege um, another group, any of that kind of, of analysis. And so, you know, kind of going to the, um, actually the title of your, your podcast, right, the Principalities and Powers, um, you know, pieces, I think that's probably the, the most sociological uh, piece in the, in the New Testament is, is that language of kind of how to, how to understand you know, these powers that, um, that, are, that are enforced by institutions and laws and policies that kind of press down and limit what we can do. Um, and they limit people in different ways, depending on how you're, where you're located um, in society. And one of the principal ways, of course, U.S. society is located people is by race. Um, and so, you know, so this, this individualism, I think it, what it does is it, it um, just makes prominent and even almost exclusively makes religion about maintaining this very personal relationship with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that, that is really what the beginning and the end of religion um, in that mm-hmm. view, right? That, that as right. long as you kind of have this interior sense of connectivity with God through Jesus um, that can be maintained through devotionals and Bible reading and, you know, and, and, and going to church, but in an odd way, even going to church is less a corporate event and more a corporate event and, or, or at least as an end and more of a corporate event in the service of still this individual relationship, which to kind of help you cultivate just this individual relationship. But what that screens out, right, what what isn't in that cultural toolkit um, is a way of seeing structural injustice. Um, And so, you know, Martin Luther King talked about um, the effect of this individualism um, as as one that kind of puts white Christian consciences to sleep. I mean, he had this this phrase and letter from Birmingham jail um, where he was writing to, you know, these very mainstream white Christian and Jewish leaders in, in the town that weren't, you know, extremists, weren't people burning crosses. Um, but he talked about, um, in kind of dismay, like why they weren't joining and defending the civil rights movement. And he said, like, who are these Christians sitting safely behind their anesthetizing stained glass windows? Right. So that, that, that sense that, that one of the things it does is it kind of screens out our blinds or, lulls one into a kind of sense of complacency about injustices that are happening outside the church or outside one's own individual psyche, right? Um, so it leads to a kind of an apathy um, among, among white Christians around systemic injustice. Um, 
in the country. So that's the individualism piece. And the relationalism is very similar to that, that it's about kind of, if you're going to solve a problem uh, like racism, you solve it through relationships, right? So one-on-one is still highly individualistic. So I'm going to be friends with someone who's African-American. Uh, I'm going to make sure that I don't hold any ill will toward anyone in my circles who is African-American. And that's really all that's required of me, right? Even though I'm, I'm living, so like, even though I'm living in um, a neighborhood that has a, a, a restrictive covenant that doesn't allow African-Americans to live in this neighborhood that I've chosen to live in, even though I'm going in to a church that would not allow African-Americans to join, um, none of that is really relevant or even, it doesn't even enter one's consciousness, right? It, it literally is screened out by this cultural um, uh, cultural toolkit. Um, and then remind me of the third one, I'm like losing that train. Oh, sure. um, <laughs> uh, yeah, anti-structuralism is that. Yeah, is yeah the and the anti-structuralism one. kind of follows from this too, right? That, mm-hmm. um, that, that you solve problems with individual relationships and not with structural changes. Right. But but that but that does allow, I think, these bigger structures that have been built, um, you know, like I said, laws, um, who can get what jobs, who can live where, who can marry whom, um, all the who can get what kinds of loans, like all of these things that were literally white supremacist policies because they valued and um, and protected and privileged um, white lives at the expense of others um, and, and literally gave advantages uh, to whites that were reserved for whites only. Um, and, and, and all of that, again, just kind of gets rendered invisible. If you can't really address the institutions, if the main way you solve problems is through individual relationships, and if the primary religious concern in your life is a private, uh, interior relationship with Jesus, all this other stuff out in society, um, society as a whole can remain as unjust and unequal, perhaps as it, as it will, because there's, it's really hard, uh, for, I think those those things to even find find a leverage point to enter into you know white Christian consciences, right? Even the the very most important thing that is presented to us is this the salvation story mm-hmm. and what it means to be saved and how your salvation is lived out. Whatever side of the coin you're on, whether you're Arminian or Calvinist, you know you still need to work out your salvation, and for it to be put in that sort of framework, which in that limits you from being able to even engage properly or in the same way as people outside of your religious community with social issues was just extremely valuable as a reader to come across that and to to see it put into those terms. It's such a sort of pernicious problem. <laughs> yeah, it's pernicious and it's, it's remarkably powerful. I mean, I can mm-hmm. say this as someone who grew up in that world too. I mean, you know, um, just to give one more quick example, um, you know, I, I remember, so I went to public school in Mississippi in Jackson, and um, it wasn't until the early 70s when I was in elementary school that the first black kids showed up at our school, right? Um, and so that meant that Mississippi had drug its feet for nearly 20 years after the Brown v. Board of Education decision came down demanding that schools desegregate. Um, but when it finally happened, you would think, right, that this was like a major event that some that your church would help you make sense of. And there was not a word uh, uttered, you know, in my church um, or uh, a way to kind of think about this as a Christian. Um, what was this about? What do we think about it? I mean, it was just utter and complete silence, um, you know, on on that issue. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this sort of limited toolkit is restricted only to evangelicals? One uh, a term I just used was like 
um, that it being pernicious. And one element of some parts of evangelical thought and, and culture is that it finds its way into other denominational spaces or cultural spaces. Given that the yeah. conser- given that the conservative party, the Republican Party, is populist, and at this point largely tolerant of racist beliefs and practices by this administration, do you think that this toolkit could be seen as applicable to broader swaths of the white American population? I I do, and you know it's worth remembering that um, you know when I sort of tell the story of the founding of the Southern Baptist Convention, you know explicitly over making. Uh, enslaving other human beings on the basis of race compatible with the gospel, mm-hmm. um, that, um, that that denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, right, was no small, uh, you know, kind of fringe uh, or denomination. I mean, by the mid-20th century, it was the largest uh, pro- expression of Protestant Christianity in the country. Um, and so as such, it played a very outsized role not only in its own denomination and not only among evangelicals, but heavily shaping uh, certainly Methodist, um, you know, uh, uh, views and and others. I think it really became such a, a strong and dominant expression that this did absolutely bleed into, um, you know, other denominations. And and it's worth saying though that that it it wasn't like. Um, it, it, I wouldn't use like a viral kind of metaphor. Like it wasn't like the other denominations were devoid right, of it and, right. so, and got in, and got infected. I mean, they mm. were there, it was there already. Um, and, and just one quick example I work in here that I think was helpful to me was to realize that even though like there were these kind of white Christian churches on both sides of the slavery question, um, there were very few white Christian churches um, that weren't all on the same side of the white supremacy question. And, and these were very different questions. Like I, I actually, before I started working in, in depth on this book, I can say that I often conflated those in my mind. Like I thought of the Civil War as a fight not only over slavery, but over white supremacy, um, right? And, and that, that it set us on a different course. And of course, the abolishment of slavery, you know, you can't really overstate how huge um, an event that is and, 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 uh, and was for the country. Uh, but, you know, I, I ended up reading a lot of Frederick Douglass um, and particularly his post-Civil War writings and speeches. And there he was just beside himself um, at how quickly whites in the North and South were mending the fences and, uh, and, and with, the, with the issue of slavery settled. And the main bridge that he, he named, you know, was that they still, um, they still had a commitment to this idea that whites were a superior race. Right, and that African Americans were inferior, and so whatever the new plans were for the country after the abolishment of slavery, the one thing that most white Christians, mainline Protestant, Catholic, all agreed on, was that white Christians were, um, and that whites were an inferior or a superior race, and they had Christian justifications uh, for that worldview, and that that was really dominant. It was dominant well into the 20th uh, century. So th- it was all there. It had different kinds of expressions, but like even Charles Finney. Who was an abolitionist, you know, a staunch abolitionist. Um, uh, uh, after the war, had a had a protege of his who was going to um, organize a, um, a a mixed race uh, worship service, and Fenny stopped him in his tracks and said, "No, no, no, you err." And I think what he said was, "You err in supposing that the principle of abolition and the principle of amalgamation are the same." Hmm. Uh, and he was absolutely against the former. Um, uh, against or for abolition, uh, uh, but absolutely against um, what he called amalgamation, that is mixing um, uh, of the races in, in, a, in a Christian context as if they were 
you know, on equal footing. Um, so, it, you know, that's there, I think, um, all the way through. And even among, uh, among Catholics, it, it's there as well, even as they're facing their own sorts of um, discrimination. Right. Yeah. And that's a very important distinction that you've made that it's not just from within, within the evangelical circles or anything like that. It was more sort of current sentiment that I was thinking about, not necessarily mm-hmm. the historical mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The historical side of things. I recently read Stamped from the Beginning, which also put this mm-hmm. into sort of clear contrast, which is just a history of racist thought in America. And it's clear that it goes back and it's not, you use the metaphor of, of virality or of something being planted, yeah. but it, it's more like white supremacy is the soil. <laughs> it's yeah, not really right. a plant that's seeded somewhere. It's actually the thing that it all grew in when we're talking about white American Christianity which is something we have to reckon with. Yeah. Let's actually talk about the racism index, which is part of the book. um, And uh, one of the more sociological oriented parts of the book, I'd like to have you explain a little bit about the structure of the study, but prior to doing so, I actually want to frame it with one of the conclusions of the study, which is that quoting again from your book, the models reveal that in the United States today, the more racist attitudes a person holds, the more likely he or she is to identify as a white Christian. Can you talk about your findings and what we can draw from them? Yeah, you know that, and if you want to add one more plain language one, you can you can actually flip it around the other way. And if you if you analyze the data the other direction, um, you could say that identifying as a white Christian makes one about ten percent more likely to hold racist views. Um, mm-hmm. It kind of works the other direction as well. Um, so, you know, one of the things I tried to set out is I, I lay out a lot of the history, um, you know, that we've been talking about, but I also want to see, um, okay, well, what differences does history make um, for current attitudes around um, racism and particularly around structural racism as opposed to kind of more personal, you know, attitudes toward racism, but how, how does it, uh, it, how operative is this cultural toolkit still? Does it hide things, does it help people see things or inhibit them from seeing things? So I came up with a um, um, thing I call the racism index in the book, and it it's, uh, basically builds on a lot of sociological literature um, about how to measure attitudes on racism um, uh, uh, in, in public opinion surveys. As you imagine, um, you have to be kind of careful about doing that. You can't just sort of ask people straight up, um, do you consider yourself to be racist or bigoted toward African-Americans? Um, you know, you don't get very accurate answers when you ask questions like that because um, uh, people don't want to be perceived, you know, in certain ways. So um, it kind of builds on a lot of uh, political science literature um, and then added, I think, some additional um, nuance to that for the current moment. Um, and so it's 15 questions. It covers a fair amount of ground. So it covers things like um, uh, the killing of African-American men by police and disproportionate sentencing and the criminal justice um, uh, uh, system. It also covers uh, just general questions about how people perceive the legacies of the past impacting the present. Uh, so are past, does past discrimination limit African-American economic mobility? Does it limit uh, their opportunities today? Uh, those kinds of questions. And then a, a set of questions that are just general questions about um, racism um, in the country. And, and one remarkable thing is that these questions all um, correlate quite highly uh, t- together. So in other words, if you answer one way on one question, you're, more, you're very likely to answer the same way on a different uh, question in the index because um, they, 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 after doing a lot of statistical tests, you can see that they're actually measuring uh, some, some common underlying um, you know, concepts. 
there. So, um, so I scored uh, these, this index, uh, essentially one way of thinking about it is scoring it on a scale of one to 10 with one holding the least racist attitudes on these structural questions and 10 holding the most racist um, attitudes. And what I found was that um, not surprisingly, when I, um, at, when I analyzed the white evangelical attitudes, um, that, that their average score um, as, a whole, as a group was eight out of 10, um, so pretty high. Um, on this on this racism index, but but what was maybe more surprising, uh, both to me and probably to your listeners, is that when I um, analyzed the views of white mainline Protestants um, mm-hmm. and white Catholics, they scored essentially seven out of ten. Um, so so not not quite as high as white evangelicals, but right behind them. And if you look at um, and a good comparison group, if you look at whites who uh, claim no religious affiliation, uh, they only score four. Um, out of 10 on this index. So, mm-hmm. and then African-Americans score about two um, on this index. So if you ask the question like, so who is closer to the views of African-Americans on issues of race and racism, um, particularly systemic racism, you know, the answer is not white Christians. I mean, the answer is whites who claim no religious affiliation are, are actually much closer. And there was this consistent, yeah, 30 point gap between uh, whites who are not not Christian and whites who are Christian of any kind across all these questions. And so, you know, what it, one way of kind of boiling it down, additionally to the kind of way we started this is to say, look, if you, if you take your average white person and you add Christianity, they actually move uh, toward holding more racist attitudes and move further away from the views um, of African-Americans. And this is true, um, by the way, I kind of check for all kinds of um, uh, possible alternative explanations, you know, so uh, uh, perhaps, for example, this pattern is there because white Christians tend to be more Republican or they tend to live in more rural areas or in, in a region that's more culturally conservative or education levels are different. And anyway, I put it into a model of, you know, more than a dozen control variables to kind of hold these, these other alternative explanations constant. And even with those in place, it turns out that these patterns persist um, and they, they barely move really when you put these controls in place, which tells you that it really is the Christianity that's doing the work uh, here, and that is the differentiator between whites uh, who who are not Christian, whites who are. Um, it, it is the religious uh, views themselves. And then the other thing I tested for was um, uh, because the other objection that might be lodged is to say, okay, well, maybe this is just because uh, maybe this is just Christians in name only. Maybe these people just claim to be Christian, but aren't really connected to a church. They're not mm-hmm. listening to sermons. They're not really reading their Bible. They're not connected to a Bible study group, that kind of thing. Um, so I actually looked and, and tested to see if religious attendance made any difference. Um, and it turns out that, that broadly speaking, among all white Christians, it, it makes no difference. Um, and in other words, that the relationship between holding racist attitudes and identifying as a white Christian is just as strong among those who attend um, less often uh, as it is among those who attend more often. And if you look just among white evangelicals, um, it turns out that those that that uh, those who attend religious services more often, that relationship between holding racist views and identifying as white evangelical is actually stronger. Uh, so, in other words, attending uh, in terms of holding more racist ad- attitudes, attending religious services more more frequently among white evangelicals actually makes things worse. Hmm. It's it's pretty stark to see that within quantifiable uh, sociological data. One of the things you mentioned is also there's a disparity between a sense of warmth, I believe is the term you use, Mm -hmm. towards African-Americans and them holding racist views. 
Do you think that's explained by this sort of these this lack that they have in their cultural toolkit that they feel like they can relate interpersonally with individual African Americans, but then still maintain these this racist worldview? I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think it's a really good illustration of that toolkit at work. Um, so, you know, one way one way that people sometimes measure um, attitudes is by um, what's in uh, kind of public opinion circles called a feeling thermometer. And you basically say to people, okay, I'm going to read you a list of a number of groups, and I want you to tell me on a scale of one to 100 how you feel about them, with uh, one being I feel real, rather more cold toward this group, and 100 being I feel more warm. Uh, toward this group. Um, and so when you ask a question like that, and you ask about African-Americans, uh, white evangelicals and other white Christian groups also score fairly high on a warmth um, you know, scale. Uh, but there is this kind of paradoxical thing that among white evangelicals, for example, they score simultaneously the highest uh, among religious groups on the warmth scale and the highest on the racism index at the same time, right? And so that is the sense of I can feel warmly toward an individual African-American, I don't want to hold anything in my heart. You know, even that language in my heart, right, is kind of part of that toolkit. Right. Um, uh, and, uh, but at the same time, these other things, um, the killing of African-American men by police, for example, um, seven in 10 um, evangelicals think these are just isolated incidents, that there's no connections. Um, so there's that um, anti-structuralism, right, not being able to connect the dots structurally. Mm-hmm. Um and and they 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 can't see it. They either can't or won't see it. Um, you know, and and again, seven and ten say they're isolated incidents um, uh, instead of part of a pattern of how police uh, treat treat African Americans. Um, and so you can feel good about my relationship with an African American, you know, who I uh, interact with at work, uh, and at the same time have no stake in the game of uh, like police reform uh, because I just simply don't see don't see don't see the problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to talk also about this story you have within the book uh, about two churches that were once one. They were actually a single church, and then they split around, along racial lines, and their ongoing dialogue with one another, um, including this uh, recent trip that they took mm-hmm. as as a group to the National Memorial of Peace and Justice, which remembers the victims of lynching across across America. Now, we haven't discussed the history of lynching or the ways in which the white church actively participated in those activities, not because it doesn't deserve attention, but because a discussion of it would require more than our allotted time here in this call. Um, but I would like for you to highlight at least some parts of this this story in particular, this way in which yeah. um, these these two churches have gotten to to begin a dialogue together and how their dialogue might be able to encourage similar congregations or even others that are, uh, you know, trying to address this personally as they think through, through these issues. Yeah, of course. I'd love to talk about this. This is, um, you know, a really moving story. Um, and it's, it's a personal one to me. Um, the, it's a story of a white and black Baptist church in Macon, Georgia, uh, this is my the hometown of my parents. In fact, um, kind of Bibb County, Georgia, um, in which Macon is part, um, is the place where both sides of my family go back for about six generations um, into the early 1700s. So um, I've got quite a bit of family history, um, mm-hmm. you know, back there. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, the white church, First Baptist Church of Christ um, in Macon, 
is actually the parent church of the church in which my parents grew up. And he's making, he's making Baptist church. They actually like uh, launched that church um, as part of their kind of missions efforts in the city. So I've got a kind of indirect connection uh, there, but um, yeah, it's a moving story. And, and, you know, there, there are pairs of churches like this all over the South in particular. Um, and that is churches that used to be the same church and the original church um, in this case in 1825, when the church was formed, um, it was formed by uh, slave-owning whites um, who brought enslaved people to church with them. Um, and so on a given Sunday, you would have uh, whites uh, sitting in the front and enslaved Africans in the back. Um, and uh, this was the kind of, you know, seabed of, of, of the church. And then it, it, it lasted that way for a couple of decades. And then as tensions were heating up in the Civil War, they split and and basically what happened was uh, the the African-American uh, were outnumbering um, uh, the white members of the church. And as abolitionist things were heating up, it became tense. And so they essentially uh, kicked out the African-Americans and, and built them a church kind of down the hill. Um, and uh, and but under the supervision of a white pastor, of course, but um, but nonetheless kind of split. And then after the Civil War, the African-American church got its own kind of independence from there. And then the two churches, you know, in a fairly small community, um, just simply ignored each other for 150 years. And then in about seven years ago, um, the two pastors um, basically got to talking over coffee and just said, look, you know, what are we doing? Like, we have this shared history. We, we're here in the same community. We're trying to solve some of the same problems. We we should know each other, essentially. Um, and, uh, in, and I think in many, like many towns, there weren't that many mechanisms for black and white people to even get to know each other. Um, mm-hmm. And so they decided to build that bridge um, and began with simple things like Easter egg rolls for the kids and potluck dinners on the, there's kind of a park that sits kind of in, in between the two churches, um, kind of neutral territory um, there. And, you know, it's made a huge difference um, I think uh, for both churches, but I think in particular you know, for the white church that has really had to confront its past um, and to tell a truer story about itself. Um, and one that I think has led them, you know, to a place of like more authenticity and I think um, uh, a just greater understanding of where they are and what's demanded of them, I think, in the mm-hmm. present. And and one of the, you know, uh, outcomes of this is that they did take a joint trip um, over to Montgomery um, to uh, the National Memorial for Peace and Healing, which, as you said, is this memorial for um, the victims of lynching. Um, and I, it's it's a very moving uh, memorial. You know, I spent some time there myself working on the book. Um, and But it's remarkable, right, for a, a kind of two churches to take this trip, you know, one bus, uh, you know, half half the group is white, half the group is black. And then they came back and had like a, a, a discussion and worship, joint kind of reflection service um, around it. Um, and, uh, it's, I, it, it's led, I think, to some really transformational ways that the white church is thinking about itself, um, uh, and its own history and, and what's required of it, you know, in, in the present. And one of the things that it's done is that, uh, you know, you talked about beginning this journey with wanting to, um, I think the white church, particularly wanting to move toward reconciliation. And as they move through this process, um, he actually told me, he said, you know, I, I've actually stopped talking about reconciliation so much. Um, and we're talking more and more about repair, repair and justice, um, mm-hmm. repairing the damage and doing justice. And that's really become the way we understand the end of this work uh, now. And we, we trust that, you know, reconciliation will come 
uh, as an outgrowth of that work. Um, but but we've kind of actually shifted the way that we understand our own responsibility, um, you know, in the work. But it's a beautiful story, and and I think actually the reason why I haven't in the book uh, is because you know I don't think there's any ten point plan uh, that everybody can follow to kind of fix you know the the problem that we have. But I think it's it's journeys like this on the ground, feeling their way along. I mean, these are the ways that I think we're going to finally begin to mend and, and repair the damage that that mm-hmm. we white Christians have been you know, really responsible for 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 centuries. Mm-hmm. You close the book by inverting the traditional, and by by which I mean traditionally racist idea of the mark of Cain, um, which is used in a lot of different racist ideologies, and you say that it is in fact white people that bear this mark. That's a really powerful symbol and symbolism like really does have a, it's affecting, it's evocative, especially for those of us with a religious history or framework of our own. Yeah. Can you elaborate on this and how you hope it might be able to help white Christians begin to, to reckon, which is another word Mm -hmm. that comes throughout your book to really reckon with white supremacy and refuse to perpetuate it? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean that that piece actually came to me from from visiting that memorial um, to the victims of lynching in Montgomery, and 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 one display uh, they have there. One of the projects that they've done is to try to document uh, the sites of of lynching that have been kind of forgotten about or suppressed, and um, and as they documented the sites, they have um, collected soil samples from the sites of the lynching. And they've displayed them back in, in on a shelf. And there's this long, you know, floor-to-ceiling shelf of these clear glass jars, kind of gallon-sized clear jars. And they have the soil that they collected and just a simple black and white label on them with the, the name of the victim or victims, um, depending on the case, um, and the date and the place um, where the lynching occurred. Um, and, you know, the, in, in that biblical passage of Cain and Abel, which is where you know this the story comes from. Um, there is this uh, line that you hear actually in the Old Testament um, a, a, a fair amount about um, when it, that that the goddess is um, saying to Cain that your brother your brother's blood cries out from the ground, um, right? So even in something that he's tried to keep hidden, that that he has hidden hidden his brother's body, he's lied to God about killing him in the text. Um, and of course, God knows the truth. Um, uh, but and, and but this line about your your brother's blood cries out from the ground, um, uh, and it really hit me that that you know this is this this suppressed and hidden history um, has been one of maintaining a kind of white Christian innocence against all evidence to the contrary, mm-hmm. um, and that if we're really going to heal uh, from this, and and I I would say. I mean, it's in two ways. And, and James Baldwin really helped me here, I think, um, in getting my head around this this issue that I had often thought of um, healing as something that needs to happen between black and white Americans. And, and that's certainly true, right? Um, there, there's no doubt that that's a massive and important project. Um, but I think the thing that we white Christians have thought less about, and we white people in general have thought less about, is the damage that we've done to ourselves by holding on uh, to a compatibility between white supremacy and Christianity. And you can only do that by great efforts at distortion. 
and disfigure and, and disfigurement. So it means that, and that requires an immense amount of psychic energy um, to really try to hold those two things together at the same time. And yet we've done this for centuries. And so there's a real sense in which, um, you know, we ourselves are sick. I mean, we have really um, disfigured the faith. Um, and if we're going to recover, um, it's going to take, you know, um, a real um, reckoning and a real sense of being able to, to grapple with this. And, and, and that finally, that's the way to freedom. I mean, in that, in that text, the, the way that, that um, Cain finds his way out of this dilemma of killing his brother and then lying about it um, is that he, he finally is able to tell the truth and, and God finally maps out an alternative history or, or an alternative future for him. Um, you know, and I, I think that that's kind of the moment we're at. I mean, that, that we have kicked this can down the road. We've had multiple opportunities for accounting with it, for it. And we just haven't really been willing to, to pay the price uh, of doing mm. that. But, but by not doing that, we are continuing our own uh, kind of ailment, really. And so if we want to find a place to help, to a healthier faith, to a healthier, uh, you know, set of institutions that we pass on to our kids, um, we've got to really do the work of dismantling the ways that we have allowed white supremacy to really sit right alongside of and in the pew next to um, the gospel. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, and I, I thought it was such a powerful, powerful image to share with your readers. Uh, Wendell Berry wrote in an essay once about how he was he he feels bound to the type of Christianity just because of its it being part of his heritage, mm -hmm. um, and I think that this really enhances that and that it puts in full relief how central this sort of distortion is to the history of white Christianity here in America. I think it's just a a, a very very evocative tool to sort of end our conversation on mm -hmm. because it really does give us those opportunities to reflect on our own histories as well as the history of our of our country and of our of our faiths. So I want to thank you for joining me today. Where can people find your book? Where can they find you online or anything else you might uh, want to mention here? Yeah, well, um, you know, the book is available wherever, you know, people like to buy their favorite books. If you want to support a local bookshop, you can go to bookshop.com um, and kind of buy it there and even, you know, pick a local bookshop to support. It's available on Amazon. Uh, of course, in other other places. Um, and if you want to follow PRI's work, we are at PRRI.org. Robert, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Glad to be here. That'll do it for this week's episode. As Robert said, you can pick up the book White Too Long at any bookstore location near you and on Amazon. If you do want to support the show, you can use the affiliate links in the show notes in order to purchase it and send a small percentage of that back the show's way. This episode was produced by Jake Lewis. The theme music is by Dave Lefevre and Jake Lewis. If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate and review Powers and Principalities on Apple Podcasts and let others know about the show. All right, talk to you soon.